Salvation Now podcast, where you'll discover and be equipped with keys from the Word of God that will pave the way to God's unlimited blessing in your life. Now, here's your host, Evangelist T.J. Malkanji. Fifteen lies the devil wants you to believe. Fifteen lies that the devil wants you to believe. Remember this, the devil has only one mission in mind when it comes to you, your family, your finances, and your body, and that is outlined in John chapter 10 and verse 10. Jesus said it, not me, not some guy in the 1800s. Jesus said, the devil comes not but for to steal, kill, and destroy. Every single interaction that the devil has with mankind is for this express purpose. It's to steal, it's to kill, it's to destroy. But just knowing that he has a mission to steal, kill, and destroy does not mean that uh, it's not enough. You, you know, it's not enough just to know what his mission is. We have to understand his strategies. We have to understand how he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The devil has a strategy. Remember, Jesus said, all power in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Jesus said that. He wasn't lying. Well, if he said all power, and you know what the funny thing is, in the Greek, the word for all that they used in the original text, translated into Greek, the, etymo- the, the actual word means all. So he wasn't, it wasn't all, but some like you know, some some uh, derivative of the word all that actually doesn't mean all. No, he meant all power and all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Jesus said that. So if all power and all authority is in Jesus' hands, and then because of our connection to Christ via redemption, because we are members of his body, members of his flesh, members of his bones, the Bible says in Ephesians 5, and the scripture says that we've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives. It's now Christ who lives in us, that power and that authority is part of the benefits of being a born-again child of God because he has all power and authority. He then said, I'm seating you with me in Christ Jesus in a high place at the right hand of the Father. This is in Ephesians 2. He made us alive together with Christ Jesus and then he went a step further. He seated us in him in heavenly places far above principalities. He even told Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of God and whatsoever things you bind shall be bound And whatever things you lose shall be loosed. So he said, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom, the keys of authority, the keys of power so that you can walk in dominion over the devil. So we've established that. Now, what we have to establish today is that the enemy has, because I said he has all power. Jesus has all power, all authority. That means the enemy has no power and no authority. But this is where people get it. See, someone hears a statement like that, they tune off because, well, what was he saying? The devil has no power. What I'm feeling is not fake. He obviously has some sort of power. He has no actual power because remember, in Colossians 2.14, the Bible says Jesus disarmed principalities and powers. He disarmed the devil. Like Brother Reinhard Bonnke used to always say, Evangelist Reinhard Bonnke, the devil is not a lion, he is like a lion, but he's been defanged and declawed. He is just a a, 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 a a cat with a microphone. He's a pussy cat with a microphone. That's all he is. And the reason why he said that was because the devil has no power and no authority, what's his strategy? 
He has a loud mouth and he lies and he's deceptive. Remember, Jesus said in John chapter 8, and I believe it's in verse 44, he addresses the nature of the devil and he says, the devil is a liar. He has been a liar from the beginning. When he speaks, he speaks of his own nature. He is a liar. He's always been a liar. He'll always be a liar. Sorry about that. I don't know why that thing just went up. He'll always be a liar. And when he speaks, he only knows how to speak lies. Sorry, let me just clean this up. This happened to me last time. I hate that this is happening right now again. Please pause for this little intermission. Where's the dock? Here it is. There you go. See, when you get technology and stuff, you start getting all kinds of like, praise the Lord. When he speaks, John 8, 44, he speaks of his own nature. He's a liar. He's been a liar from the beginning. That's what the scripture says. So what, what's his strategy? Since he has no power to actually physically harm you, and he has no authority to do so, because the Bible says the believer has authority over the devil, not, not the opposite. The scripture says that uh, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 10. He said, behold, I give you power over unclean spirits, serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the devil, and nothing shall by any means harm you. So if God, Jesus said, I've given you power and authority over all the works of the devil and nothing shall by any means harm you, why is it that there are believers that are harmed? Why is it that there are Christians that suffer? Why is it that there are still believers that are sick, still believers that have depression, and it's not fake, they actually feel these things? I'll tell you why. In this broadcast, I'll show you. His main strategy is to get believers to have a wrong belief a wrong belief, to adopt a wrong belief system about the devil, about God, and about life. Let me read you this in, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is what the word says. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. Listen to this. If God, perhaps, will grant them repentance, which is a change of mind, so that they may know the truth and escape, sorry, that they may know the truth, come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. The Bible says, that the reason why preachers preach and God has commissioned preachers is to enlighten people so that they may come to their senses, come to the knowledge of the truth, and in doing so, escape the snares of the devil. So how does the devil snare or ensnare people? What's a snare? It's a trap. How does he trap people? How does he rob people of God's best in their life? How does he get or accomplish his works? By keeping people away from the truth. 
by keeping people in darkness. Remember, Jesus called the devil the prince of darkness. Well, what does he mean by calling him the prince of darkness? What is darkness biblically? We're not talking about there's, there's no lights on when, whenever there's no lights on at night. That, that's when the devil operates. I'm, what Jesus was saying is that the devil operates where there's an absence of light. So we have to establish what is light scripturally. What does, what does the Bible call light? The Bible says in Psalm 119 and verse 130, the entrance of God's word brings light. So the word of God is the light of God. So when the Bible says that the devil is the prince of darkness, Jesus was saying that the devil operates when there's no knowledge of God's word. The place the devil best operates is in darkness, is in ignorance of what God has said. That's where he consoles, because you, when you don't know the truth, you'll fall for anything. When you don't know the truth, and I don't mean when you can't quote the Bible. There's a lot of people that quote the Bible. I'm talking about having a revelation knowledge of the Bible, having deep-rooted insight, scriptural revelation. The Bible calls it rhema, a quickened word. When the word has been rooted in your heart with understanding, where you're not just quoting something mindlessly, but you actually understand what God meant. And because you understand that, it puts you, it gives you leverage in life. It puts you at a high advantage in life because the devil can take Take advantage, the Bible says in, I believe it's 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, that we, Paul saying, we are not ignorant of the devil's devices, lest we should be taken advantage by him. So when you're ignorant of what, how the devil operates, and you're ignorant of, as to what his strategies are, and strategies are, and you're ignorant as to uh, what God's word con says concerning particular situations, that's when the devil can take advantage of you. That's when you are technically in darkness. That's why Paul constantly throughout his epistles is saying, you're not in darkness, you're in light. Put on the armor of light. What's the armor of light? There's no actual physical armor you can go and put on. It's not like you can go to Walmart and get the armor of light in aisle six next to the frozen section. The armor of light is the word of God. You know, Paul says in Ephesians 6, he's, talks, he's talking about the armor of God. And he says above everything else, above the breastplate of righteousness, above the belt of truth, he says above it all, you should put on the shield of faith. Well, where does faith come from? Faith comes by hearing and understanding the word of God. That's Romans 10, 17. So how could you pick up the shield of faith if you have no knowledge of the word of God. And if you don't have the shield of faith, the, you know, what does the shield of faith do? Paul says it extinguishes every fiery dart of the enemy. It puts out every attack the devil launches your way. It literally puts down every weapon that can be formed against you. The shield of faith has an answer to, and it disarms and causes it to backfire. So if you don't have the shield of faith up, then every fiery dart, what's a fiery dart? It's not only the thoughts the enemy seeks to put in your mind, but it's the attacks he seeks to launch against your life. And the Bible says every fiery dart will make its way, 
without hindrance into your life if you haven't picked up the shield of faith, which we've established that faith begins where the will and the word of God is known. So if you don't know the Bible, you're in ignorance. And the Bible says it's for lack of what? That my people are destroyed. Not lack of power, not lack of God's love and support, not lack of God's help, not... Uh, because there's a big, angry, mean devil, and we're all, uh, you know pretty much helpless against him. The Bible says it's because of a lack of knowledge that my people are destroyed. In Isaiah 5:14, God says through the prophet Isaiah, "My people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge." We just read it. Let me read it again. For Second Timothy 2, God will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. So that captivity was caused because there was a lack of knowledge of the truth. How did the devil take captive Adam and Eve by sin? How did he do it? He approached them in the garden. You can read this in Genesis 3. And he was, the Bible says, the serpent was the most subtle and crafty and sly and deceptive being of all the creatures the Lord God had made. And he approached Eve in the garden and he said, did God indeed say that you, uh, you can't eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil? Did God indeed say that? And Eve replied, he didn't just say don't eat of it. He said don't even touch it, which was not true. He just said don't eat of it. But she, obviously, Adam had warned her and said, hey, not only not eat, don't even look at it, don't touch it. So she, she, she knew what the commandment of God was. But what did Satan move to do afterwards? Satan said, hey, 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 listen. It's not that God, it's not that God uh, put that tree there because it's going to kill you. God's trying to rob you of becoming like him, which if you obviously study Genesis 1, the Bible says God created us in his image. We were already created like God. But what did Eve say? Or what did the Satan say? Satan knew that if he can attack the foundation of their belief system to get them to doubt what God had said, did God indeed say that? You sure that's in the Bible? You sure that's in there? Because if he can crack the foundation of their belief system, then he knew he can cause it to collapse, and in doing so, he can get them to do whatever he desired them to do. You know, Adam and Eve had to live by faith in the Garden of Eden. They had to live by faith in the Garden of Eden, in faith in what God had said, that if they touched that fruit and ate of that fruit, it would cause them to die. So Satan went to attack the foundation of their faith by getting him to doubt the integrity of God's word. Because he knew that a faith failure meant, meant uh, it's like the equivalent of heart failure in men. Satan successfully convinced Adam and Eve of two things. One, that God's word should be doubted, that it's not trustworthy, that he is, uh, he's like a man that he can lie. And then number two, that the consequence of unbelief is not that severe. That if you'll, he didn't, you know, what did he tell Eve? If you eat of it, you're not going to die. On the contrary, you'll be like God. 
You'll not die. You'll be stronger. You'll be happier. You'll be, isn't that what temptation comes and brings? If you'll do this, you'll be happier. You'll have pleasure. You'll be, you'll have fun. God's word is just designed to strip life of fun. I'm trying to make things fun for you. You know, you've had a hard week. Why don't you crack open that beer? It'll give you rest. It'll give you, it's the devil promises a bunch of things that he has no power and neither does he have a will to fulfill if you'll follow his report and his will. He got Adam and Eve to accept a new belief system and in that system, there was a programming that was designed to ruin their lives and shipwreck their destinies. Your belief system matters. Why? I'll explain why. Because what you believe is what you will become. What you believe is what you will become. The law of faith is an irrefutable law that God has implemented in in all realms, heavenly realm, earthly realm. It's an irrefutable law that all mankind operates by. How do I mean, how could you prove that? You if you're sitting on a chair right now, did you test the integrity of the chair before you sat down? No. You had faith that the chair would hold you up. You were operating in a law of faith. That this chair has the structural integrity to hold you up. When you get on an airplane, do you go and vet the pilot? Do you go and interview him and, and, and maybe have a psychologist come on board with you just to do a, a psychiatric evaluation on the pilot before you, before you even uh, buy a plane ticket? No, you buy the ticket, you get on the plane. Most of you who fly often, you don't even look into the cockpit to see whether a pilot's even there. And yet you sit comfortably on that chair in that plane and eat your crackers that they give you halfway through the flight. Why? Because there is a level of faith. There is a law of faith in a natural sense of it. But nonetheless, it's it's the law of faith that you're operating by. Well, everything operates by faith. Everything. Everything operates by faith. The Bible says... uh, that the, the, there's a law of faith in Romans chapter 3, verse 4. Uh, the law of faith, this is important to say, will never cease to be until all is regenerated in the new heavens and in the new earth. Until then, the law of faith will govern the entire spiritual and earthly realm. Until then. That's why you have guys like Anthony Robbins and all these motivational gurus. They've actually, I'm telling you, 98 95% of what they say, they've gotten from the Bible. And then the 5% that they, uh, that they throw into, it just totally perverts the entire message. But nonetheless, the principles that they teach, have their, a lot of them have their root in scriptural principles that they've warped and perverted. Now, Anthony Robbins is by far nowhere near kosher. And, uh, and I would go as far as to say he, he's, he's, a false, he's a false teacher. And one of the false teachers that the Bible says in the last days will arise and deceive many. Because his, 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 his doctrine's all skewed. But the, the, the origins of the thought process that was generated in them for you know, increase and all that was biblically derived. You know, they talk about the power of confession. Where do you think they got that from? The Bible. Proverbs 18, 21. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. They that love it shall eat of its fruit. So even the devil uses the laws of faith to get his message across. 
Jesus said in Matthew 5, 18, and surely I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not one daughter tittle from my word will by all means pass away until all is fulfilled. So when is the law of faith going to be done away with? When the new heavens and the new earth emerge. That's what Jesus said. How does the law of faith operate? What you think in your mind will determine what you believe with your heart, which will inevitably influence what you confess. And what you confess in life is what you'll possess in life. It's impossible to bypass or circumvent this law of faith. What you think will dictate what you believe. What you believe is what will influence what you confess, and what you confess will determine what you possess in life. Jesus said in Mark chapter 11 and 23, if you have faith, you will say to this mountain, be thou uprooted, cast into the sea, and if you won't doubt in your heart, that talks about where faith, uh, where faith resides, it's in your heart, faith is not in the mind, the process begins in your mind. You have to accept it with your mind. But then faith has to do with the heart. The Bible says in Romans 10, it's with the heart that man believes. And then when you've accepted something in your heart, it then, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. It will influence what you speak. And then Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty three, 23, you will have what you say. So what you think what you believe, what you confess, is what will determine what you possess, what you have, what belongs to you in your life. In life. Now, get this. This is going to tick off a lot of religious folk, but this is true nonetheless. Life is not determined by what God wants for your life. Life is not determined by what God wants for you. How do we know that? Because God wants everybody saved, and yet people die every second of the day and go to hell, unfortunately. And that grieves my heart to say that. God wants everyone to live holy, and yet there are people that are walking in adultery and fornication and all kinds of stuff. God wants everyone to be kind, and yet some will be extremely rude today and flip the bird to people driving on the road because of road rage. God wants everyone to have moral, just, truthful dealings, and yet there are many that are corrupt and wicked in their dealings. God wants everyone's needs met and no poverty because he said, let my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And yet there are people that live in abject poverty. And that doesn't mean God wants them to live in poverty. Just because someone's life looks like that does not mean God by his sovereignty has commissioned that for their lives. No, God's permission does not, uh, has no indication as to what God's will is for someone's life. Just because God permitted it to happen does not mean he wanted it to happen. Do you think the shooting in Texas, God wanted that to happen? You have your brain dead if you think that's what God's will was. Do you think Hurricane Katrina in 2006, I believe it was, or whenever it was, I might be wrong on my dates, but do you think Hurricane Katrina that wiped out New Orleans was because God wanted that to happen? Really? Because the, most of the people that got affected, there was a, a story of a, of a nursing home, a Christian nursing home where uh, believers can send their, elder, their, their aged ones to be taken care of. It was like a Christian nursing home and 90% and of them died. Do you think God was wanting to just kill 90% of old-fashioned believers that lived their entire... No, that's not God's will. You know, there was a preacher that was at a conference once, and Kenneth Hagin was 
was at that conference and he was listening to him preach and the guy starts preaching he's saying you know I had just bought this beautiful tent for our uh, tent crusades we wanted to do all across America and there was there was a, a great windstorm that came and it took our tent and it totally destroyed it now we need a new tent well I don't know if God destroyed my tent or the devil but we need a new tent now do you think God's going around destroying gospel tents no he wants to build them up you know, you have a church that burns down because someone left the propane tank in the barbecue on or whatever. And, uh, and, and they call it an act of, uh, an act of God. They, t- they call it in the insurance policies. They call it an act of God. It has nothing to do with God. You think God's burning churches down? No, he's trying to build churches up. And so just because God, will, God allowed something to happen doesn't mean it's his will. What God wants and what you can have in life can only be connected when faith laws are applied consistently. Let me remind. Let me rep, uh, repeat this again. What what God wants and is written clearly in His Word, and what you have and possess in life is only connected when faith laws are applied consistently. Your life will be the product of what you're bold enough to believe, confess. From God's word. Your life will be the product of what you're bold enough to believe and confess from God's word. The devil does not get to decide your destiny. You and God can write the following chapters of your life until Jesus takes you home. By abiding in these laws of faith. Jesus said in John 15, if you will will abide in me and my words abide in you. Which we said, faith begins where the word of God is known. And my words abide in you, you will, you, can, uh, you will ask for whatever you desire and it shall be done for you. John 15, 7. Jesus said in John 8, verse 32, if you have my word and continue therein, you are my disciples. What does he mean by continue? He doesn't just mean by, you know, you read it every day. He means you apply its principles. You apply its laws. You're following it. You're keeping his instructions. You're abiding by the laws of faith. Abiding in God does not mean, it doesn't simply mean you pray daily. That's a part of it. But abiding in God is, because if all you do is, there's a lot of people I know that are prayer warriors, but they're gallant messes in life, gallant failures in life. Just because you pray every day doesn't mean you're going to have success in life. Because you can pray all you want. If you don't, prayer is not a shortcut to God's blessing and you can violate all his scriptures and principles. Prayer is to be coupled with obedience to God's word if you're going to maximize maximize what God's uh, blessings bring to you in life. You know, it's like you have two legs. If all you had was one leg and you just hopped around in life. You know, you're going to be unbalanced. You're going to be prone to falling. You're going to be unstable. So if all you have, if all you do is read the word and you don't pray, you're going to be unstable in life because you'll know all the principles, but you won't have the spirit of faith to actually go and apply it. If all you do is pray, but you don't know the word, you're going to have, you're going to be charged up. You know, I've got the fire of God, but you won't know how to do anything because you're not, you know, the Bible says, Um, that if you wander from the way of understanding, you'll rest in the assembly of the dead. Meaning if you don't understand what God's word says, it doesn't matter if you pray 19 hours a day and sleep only five hours. The Bible says you'll rest in the assembly of the dead. So if you, you know, there's that old saying, I think Donald G said, if you have, if all you do is pray, uh, if all you do is pray, you'll blow up. 
If all you do is read the word, you'll dry up. But if you pray and have the word, you'll grow up. And that's what we want. And that's what we want. So I explained the law of faith. Now, the devil uses the law of faith in a negative sense. Instead of getting you to believe God's word, like in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, he seeks to steer people away from the Bible and towards destructive belief systems that are designed to shipwreck people's destinies. Designed to strip people of pleasure in life, designed people to strip people of joy, strip people of health, strip people of everything God wants them to have. This is how he ran his program in Eden. He got Adam and Eve to accept a new belief system, to adopt a new belief, and in doing so, he shipwrecked the, the, the state of perfection that they were in. Your belief system matters. I want you to write that in the comment section. My belief system, my belief system matters. Because there's all too many people now in modern Christianity, especially in Western society, where they say it's not about doctrine, it's about intimacy with God and His Spirit. The very statement you just made is a doctrine. You can't say it's not about doctrine and then say it's about intimacy with God and His Spirit. Because God and intimacy with God and His Spirit all of that, how do you know you can have intimacy with God in the spirit? Well, it's by studying Bible doctrine. So you can't even say those things without having Bible doctrine. Bible doctrine matters. Teaching the word matters. You know, the Bible talks about the fivefold ministry, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher. I want you next time you're at a beach and you have sand, I want you to grab sand with just with just four of your five fingers. Leave the pinky out. Leave the pinky out. And grab the sand and see if the, stand, the sand stays. The sand doesn't stay. It's going to filter. It's going to flow right through your hand. You're not going to be able to retain whatever you put in your hand. The teacher is like the pinky of the hand. You grab sand and you have all five fingers working. The sand's going to stay in your hand. When you don't have the pinky working and the pinky's out, the sand's going to fall right through. And that's what you have with a lot of Christians. I, I need prophet this and that to give me a word. I need, you know, you go to the evangelist just to get, you know, steered up and, and excited for, for God. But if there's no proper teaching, there's no Bible doctrine that you're standing on, everything you have is just going to fall through. Nothing's going to work. Proper Bible teaching is what retains and sustains growth. That's why Paul's constantly exhorting the people. Let the words of Christ dwell richly within you with wisdom and understanding. Paul prays for the Colossian church in Colossians 1. He says, I pray that God may fill you with all the knowledge of his will so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good season. So when you don't have Bible doctrine, not only is there no sustainability and no growth in your life, but the enemy, like I said before, if you don't know the truth, you're going to fall for everything. The devil could come and sow tares amongst the wheat, and you won't know the difference between wheat and tares. You'll take it all in. You'll accept it all in. And that's where erroneous doctrine is birthed. That's where false teaching grows, um, it, it, it grows popular. And the Bible says in the last days, false teaching isn't going to diminish. Paul says, the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter days, many will depart from the faith. Why? 
They're going to depart from the faith based on the truth of God's word. Why? Because they're going to give heed to seducing spirits. The devil is on the go. The Bible says he is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's not seeking to help you. Temptation, sin, uh, a lot of false doctrine is designed to almost make sense of things. It's designed to... The, the devil programs it so that it makes people feel like, oh, this makes sense. Oh, this can work. Oh, this will help me. It's designed to look like it can help, but it's full of bacteria and poison and it's going to erode and corrode you until like acid, it just, it, uh, it, it totally um, erodes everything about you. It totally eats away at your life. He's like a roaring lion. He seeks whom he may devour. But the good news is, is there's those whom he can devour based on that scripture and there's those whom he cannot devour. Because Peter would have just said he seeks, he, seeks, uh, he seeks to devour everything that comes in his way. Doesn't say that. It seeks whom he may devour. Meaning there's people that he may not devour. And that's the league you're going to join today. That's the company of believers you're going to join today. You're not going to fall for the lies of the devil anymore. As the truth of God's word comes into your heart, all the darkness that he's kept you bound with. You know, a lot of people are saying, they ask me all the time, do you do deliverance? Do you do deliverance? Do you do deliverance? I do deliverance. You want to know how I do deliverance? Isaiah 51. Listen to this. This is the highest form of deliverance. This is the greatest way you can be delivered today without anyone even laying hands on you, without a Zoom call, without you coming at, just in your seat wherever you're watching, in your car wherever you're watching, in the shower if you're listening to this. This is how you can be delivered right here, right now, on the spot. Listen to me, all you who, who seek for deliverance. Let me get it out of the, the New Living Translation because it, it better uh, translates in my opinion. Isaiah 51, verse 1. Listen to me, all you who follow after righteousness. Sorry, wrong translation. Listen to me, all you who hope for deliverance. All you who are expecting deliverance. All you who are desiring deliverance. I need to be free. I feel like I've got the devil on my back. I've been trying to resist. You know the Bible says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There's people who say, I'm resisting, he's not fleeing. Well, then James was not a liar. The Holy Spirit's not a liar who moved on James to write those words. So if he's not resisting, uh, sorry, see, if he's not fleeing, then you're not resisting. Well, no, brother, I am resisting. Well, maybe you're not resisting the right way because the Bible says when you resist, he will flee. That's a given. There's not he may flee, but it could take some time. He's going to flee. So if he's not fleeing, then there's obviously a problem in the way that I'm resisting. So listen to this. Listen to me, all who hope for deliverance, all who seek the Lord for help. Consider the rock from which you were cut out of, the quarry from which you were mined. Yes, think about Abraham, your ancestor. Think about Sarah who gave birth to your nation. Abraham was one man when I called him. But when I blessed him, he became a great nation. And so the Lord will comfort Israel again and have pity on her ruins. Her desert will blossom like Eden again and her barren wilderness like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found, in, found there again and songs of thanksgiving will fill the air. Some of you watching right now, you don't remember the last time you had a song of thanksgiving, a new song in your heart. Some of you have never, have not felt joy and gladness since your 
pre-adolescence, since you were a teenager, since you were a little child. I'm here to tell you today, as you listen to these 15 lies the devil's pitched you to keep you in that state of bondage, God is going to enlighten your spirit. The chains of bondage are going to fall off. As you consider Abraham, what's considering Abraham? It's considering your spiritual heritage, considering what God through redemption has brought to you, considering that the Bible says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law so that the blessing of Abraham might come on us. Well, what's the blessing of Abraham? We just read it. It, it says, when I found him, he was little. He was insignificant. He was nothing. He was, he was a, a, in a family of idol makers. But after I was done with him, how greatly I blessed him. How greatly I expanded him. How greatly I filled him with joy and thanksgiving, with pleasure in life. How, how greatly I delivered him into a place where others dream about. God's going to bring you to that place today in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ. How does God deliver people? Very clearly stated right here. By pointing them to their, their spiritual heritage. And how do you discover your spiritual heritage? From the word of God. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 16, 17. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may fill you with all wisdom and revelation. Revelation. The devil is the prince of darkness. He operates in darkness. He operates in ignorance. So what's the solution to darkness? Revelation light. Light from the word of God. Paul said, I pray that you may have that light, that your heart may be flooded with light, he says, so that you may know the hope of your calling, that you weren't called to be beat down and harassed and bullied. I'm tired of seeing Christians bullied their entire life. It's about time, it's high time, the body of Christ rises and by faith, violent faith, take hold of the things Christ shed his blood for us to enjoy in life. Don't let the blood of Jesus be shed in vain. Don't, don't just say it's just for forgiveness. It's more than that. The Bible says Paul was given instructions from God himself. He said, I'm sending you now as a chosen vessel of mine and you will turn people from darkness to light. And then he explains what that means. From the power of Satan to the power of God. When the light of God's word is illuminated in your spirit, the power of Satan looses its grip on your life. He loses your, his hold on your life. And he turns you to God's power, which then downloads everything the Bible promises you can have. I wrote this on Twitter today, and it bears repetition. This is what I wrote. A miracle of God is simply defined as a divine intervention provoked by the desperate faith of men with the purpose of undoing the devil's works and establishing God's will in your life. That's why 1 John 3, one of my favorite verses, the Son of God was made manifest to destroy the work of the devil. That's what a miracle of God is. It's divine intervention provoked by the faith of men which undoes the devil's works and then establishes God's will in your life. That's what's going to happen to you today. As, these, as I go through these lies, all the chains the enemy set up, it's like light bulbs are going to be lighting up all around you. Man, I thought I had to struggle with that. Oh, I thought that was 
Paul's thorn in the flesh. Oh, I thought this, it's all going to fall off and you're going to be supernaturally infused with the God kind of faith that is able to connect you with the circuit of God's power that's going to come alive in you. So let's go through these 15 lies. And I'm probably only going to get through five or seven today and I'm going to do the rest on Thursday. So it's going to be a two-part series. If I was the devil, this is what I'd want you to believe. So I said it before. Your belief system matters. What you adopt as a truth in your life. You know, they all say my truth, my truth. You can say there is only one truth. Some people think they have the truth, but there's only one truth. The devil wants to make you, you know, he doesn't say here, these are some lies that I have for you. He says, this is the truth. The Bible says he disguises himself as an angel of light, as a minister of righteousness. So he's not, how many of you ever saw the devil come in with a pitchfork and a red tail and horns on his head and fire all around him? And he said, here, take some. No, he comes sly. He comes sneaky. He comes crafty. He comes uh, as a minister of light. He tries to feed you what looks like a chocolate chip cookie. You know, I, I was looking on Instagram the other day, and there's these cakes now that they have that they look like they look like a book. They look they, these guys can make it look like anything. They look it looks like a, a, a computer, and then they just cut. Through. One of them looked like a dog. I felt so sorry. They brought it home. Uh, and then they had another dog that was an actual dog, and they brought the cake home, and it was—I think it was his like birthday gift or something. And then they—they—they—they they, they, they just cut through the dog, and the other dog was like, "Oh my goodness, these, this family is a bunch of psychopaths." But the the cake was a dog; it looked just like him. They, it, that's exactly how the devil operates. It looks like something, but when you cut through, it's not at all what it seems like. I always say this, the devil will leave a trail of chocolate chip cookies all around you, and he'll lead you, he'll lead you, he'll lead you, thinking that at the end of this trail, there's going to be an amazing chocolate chip cake, or some chocolate fondue, or whatever, but in actual fact, you get to the end of the trail, and all there is, is tofu, and nobody likes tofu. That's how he operates. So if I was a devil, these are certain things I want you to get to accept in your life. Number one, and I know I'm going with the most controversial one first, but so be it. Tithing is Old Testament only. You don't have to tithe. You don't have to give any of your money to the church. All the church wants is your money. You know, there is just a big gimmick created by selfish preachers who want nothing more than to buy their next Breitling watch and their next fancy vacation and fuel up their jets so that they can go and spend it on nice vacations. And oh, I, I'm, you know, listen to me. I'm sure that there are some knucklehead preachers out there that have twisted the message of giving and the message of prosperity and the message of provision. I'm sure, I know that there are some, you know, 3 a.m. preachers on some Christian television network where they have a lime green suit with dollar signs all over them. And they literally, in a 30-minute program, spend 29 and a half minutes trying to squeeze that extra dollar out of you, saying if you'll give 200 uh, or, or $316, you'll have the John 316 blessing. Your family will be saved. And they malign the word of God, and their judgment is secure. The Bible says these go into widows' houses, and they corrupt the truth so as to uh, have private gain or personal gain. They go into widows' houses, and they devour widows' homes. And the Bible says that they plead, they, they pray on the weak and those people are, are they have their judgment secure I'm not saying it doesn't happen but just because there's a little bit of 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 uh, of falsehood 
that the enemy, you know, that's exactly the devil's plan is to try and show you and expose to you all the, the crazy ones so that you totally abandoned the actual message, the truthful message. And so I'm sure there's a small percentage of preachers that have twisted ambition and their eyes are just dollar signs, but that doesn't negate the truth that's discovered in God's word. Giving God your tithes and offerings is a Bible principle, and I'm going to show you how it's not just Old Testament, that has been designed not to short you of cash in life, but rather to connect you to an unfailing economy, heaven's economy. And I feel, I felt to put this number one, because in the coming years, I'm pretty sure, you know, Jesus said there's going to be a shaking on the earth. And the shaking is going to overflow into the financial realm. It's going to hit the, econo the economies of this world. It's going to hit the, 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 the financial economies of this world. And if your hope is just in your job or your hope is in uh, a government pay bailouts or your hope is in a welfare check or your hope is in some, ins uh, you know, they had their, their, their um, what do you call it, those uh, stimulus checks that they sent out. If that's where your hope relies, you have a false hope, you're on shaking sand and you're bound to collapse. My source of income is not my salary that we take from this ministry because we have a salary set by a board and stuff. My source of income is not in, uh, in, in, you know, we're in Canada, the Canadian government sends out money sometimes. That's not where my source of income is. My source of income isn't in my family. It's not in my parents. It's not, you know, looking forward to Christmas to get a nice fat check. It, it, my source of income where my eyes, the Bible says, the eyes of all look expectantly to Jesus, to God. For he satisfies their heart's desires and he opens up his hand to, to satisfy the desires of every living thing. If your hope is in a political party, a, a liberal government or a conservative government or some other government, then you are on a faulty ground that is destined for collapse. My eyes are on the hand of God because his hand will provide all that you need. His hand will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. His hand is what is going to uh, not only sustain you, but his hand is going to cause you to prosper in the famine. Isaac, the Bible says in a time of famine, earthly famine, global famine, he sowed and the Lord caused his seed to take root and he yielded a hundredfold fruit. When the Philistines were sowing and nothing was happening, Isaac was in covenant with God and he sowed and reaped a hundredfold harvest in that same, that same year. So the tithe and the offering was designed to connect you to that, to that covenant. Prosperity is not a promise. Prosperity is a covenant. And the Bible says for all of the people that, I can't believe he used the word prosperity on the broadcast today. Ah, he must be one of those guys. The Bible says in Psalm 35, 27, the Lord hath delight in the prosperity of his servants. If people hate the word prosperity, you're going to have to rip out quite a few chapters of the Bible because there's quite a few chapters in this in New Testament too. Quite a few verses throughout the scriptures that deal with that. I mean, why is it such a hard thing to tell people God doesn't want you to struggle financially the rest of your life. God actually wants to bail you from the evil slave system that whether you know it or not, 
The, the, the financial system of the nations of the earth are designed to keep you bound. They're designed to keep you poor. They're designed to keep you enslaved to banking systems, to interest rates. That's how it is. They don't want you paying cash for things. They want you on a 25, 30 year loan. They don't want you with cash. They don't want you to have overflow and abundance. They don't want you to have your storehouses filled with grain because if they can keep you connected to their nipples, then, because that's how it is, it's like, that's how I always seen it, like a cat that has nine nipples and everybody, all the cats are just connected to it. They can keep you to that, they can keep you coming back and they can keep you uh, enslaved to that monetary system that was designed to keep you generations after you. Never paying cash. That's why the devil, that's why I'm starting with this, because the devil uses this tithing's Old Testament. You don't have to tithe anymore. Because he wants, if he can, he can't stop the blessing of God from overflowing you. But what he can do is cause you to back down from your responsibility in tapping in to the blessing of God that can overflow in your life. He gets you to back down. So, you look at, and you know what? The devil wants a poor church. The devil wants an impoverished church because Zechariah prophesies that it's through prosperity that my city shall be spread abroad, meaning that the gospel in these last days is going to cover the entire earth and it's not going to be free. It's going to require money and God is going to make sure that in the last days the wealth of the wicked is stored out, uh, is, is, is stored up for the righteous, is transferred into the hands of the righteous. So the purpose of the wealth coming into the hands of the righteous is for the, the, the kingdom of God being spread abroad throughout the entirety of the earth. That's the purpose of it. If, you're per, if your desire uh, in prospering is so that you can you buy that Ferrari that you've always wanted, whatever, not that having nice cars is a wrong thing. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with enjoying things in life. But if your ambition, your motivation in getting out of bed in the morning and working and when you're sowing you're like lord i'm sowing this so i can get that ferrari your 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 motives are all screwed up your motive has to be to seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and when you do that god will bring you to a point where you can not only write off crusades you know you know how nice it'd be when a church is they, they need a, a building program and instead of coloring in a red thermometer for 15 years just to you know, build a new hot water tank or whatever. Instead, you have someone that God's blessed financially where they can write up one check and solve the entire thing. You know, there's Hobby Lobby, David Green, where he, our old, my, the Bible college I went to was in debt a million dollars. And uh, they were in dire need of a new, of a new uh, building and a new uh, grounds for, for their school to operate on. And David Green literally wrote up a $1 million check to pay off the debt of the school, and then he went on to buy a buy the school a brand new, a brand new, um, uh, brand new property with land, massive, beautiful property in Massachusetts. And he did that because God had blessed him and increased him to the level where he could do that. And God said, in the last days, it's through that type of prosperity that my kingdom will be spread abroad. Reinhard Bonnke, who led 79 million souls in 79 years of life, 
You think those crusades he did in Africa were free? Do you think he just got on a plane and they're like, oh, Reinhard Bonnke's here. Let's give him first class. Oh, you need a stage for your crusade? Yes, we've got that cover. That didn't happen. He had to pay. He had to, he had to provide all those things. You know who wrote up that, uh, who wrote up those checks? Wealthy Christian businessmen that wrote up those checks, that signed off those checks to fund, fund the gospel going through, through uh, Reinhard Bonnke's ministry. So what does the devil do? If I can get the people to be embittered towards the tithe and teach them that any preacher that speaks on giving is only for money, then I can successfully dissuade the people from ever sowing a dime into the kingdom and so then keep them out of God's prosperity plan that was designed to lift them out of poverty and into financial freedom where they're now able to be a blessing. Remember, God told, Je John, uh, God told Abraham in Genesis 12, I am blessing you so that you can be a blessing. So let me get through it. Tithing's Old Testament. Matthew 23, 23 says that uh, Jesus rebuking the Pharisees, he said, you guys tithe of mint, cumin, and other spices, but you've neglected love, justice, and equity. And he says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus wasn't saying, you know, in this new covenant that I'm bringing, you don't have to tithe anymore. He's saying this you ought to have done. It was the right thing to tithe. But you should never neglect justice, equity, and truth. That's in Matthew 23, 23. So he didn't say you guys are tithing, you think that's all it is. No, it has nothing to do with that. It's about walking in love. That's the higher way. No, it's you ought to have done it without leaving love. Uh, without, without leaving love out of the equation, you got to couple them both. You know, even Paul says that if I give my body to be burnt at the stake, and though I bestow all my goods to bless the poor, I give everything away. Not 10%, 100%. But I have not love, it profits me nothing. So Paul was saying, love is the key ingredient for anything in, king, in the kingdom to work. But he doesn't say that love is everything. You don't need anything else. No, he said, Jesus said you ought to have tithe, but don't walk in, in contempt towards your brothers and bitterness towards others. Then in Hebrews 7, so people that say there's, no, there's no, any, not anything about tithing in the New Testament. Hebrews 7, listen to this. This is the longest scripture on the tithe in the entire Bible. Hebrews 7 says this. Now consider how great this man was, speaking of Melchizedek, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils, and indeed those who are the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they've come from the loins of Abraham. So he's talking about the commandment of the law, which I'm going to explain this. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them, received tithes from, from who? From Abraham. Was Abraham under law? No. Abraham was before the law. There was no law in Abraham's day. The law came by Moses. Moses wrote about Abraham, but in, Moses, in Abraham's day, there was no law. And the Bible says that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, who some people believe either A, he was the pre-incarnate Christ, that's one of the theories that Melchizedek was actually Christ in the flesh, but pre-incarnate, meaning before his actual uh, coming to the earth, his first advent. And then others believe that he was a type and shadow of Christ because he was a high priest forever. 
uh, in the same fashion as Christ. The Bible says he has no genealogy. He, nobody knows where he came from. Nobody knows where he went. And he remains a priest continually like the Son of God, made like the Son of God. So people believe he was like the Christ. Some people believe he was the pre-incarnate Christ. Some people, like Itzmael said, I believe he was a foreshadowing of Jesus. That, that's, that's a theory, and I don't think one is right over the other. I, I've actually never really studied it in depth to come up with my own like, uh, opinion on it. But the Bible says Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Well, Abraham did that before there was ever even a commandment to tithe. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Verse 8, Hebrews 7, 8. Here, mortal men. So he doesn't say, you know, under the law, that's when mortal men receive tithe, but we don't do that anymore. It says here, still to this day, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them. Who is he speaking of? Jesus. He receives them of whom it is witness that he lives. That he lives. Well, who's he talking about? Jesus. He lives forevermore. And the Bible says here on earth, we continue to bring our tithes, showing that in the New Testament, in the early church, they continue to bring their tithes. But there in heaven, Jesus receives their tithes. That's why when I teach on giving, I'm not telling you to give to a ministry. If you've ever given to a ministry, you did it wrong. You're giving to Jesus. You're putting it into the hands of Jesus. I don't give because a ministry needs my help. I give by instruction from heaven. God says, give there, I give. I don't care if it's a prospering ministry already or if it's a struggling ministry. I don't care. I give by instruction. I sacrifice my seed on the mountain. God tells me to do it like God did uh, God spoke to Abraham to do. Abraham, go and sacrifice Isaac on the mountain that I'm going to tell you. I'm going to show you. I don't just sacrifice my seed anywhere. I ask the Lord, Lord, where would you have me give? And then he tells me. And when I give, I'm not giving to a ministry by compulsion. I'm not giving because of necessity. You know, we should really help him out. I'm giving because God loves a cheerful giver. And the Bible says, Abraham tithed. Jesus said this. Remember this in John chapter 10, I believe it is. If you were Abraham's children you would do the works of Abraham if you were Abraham's children you would do the works of Abraham because they were saying we're of Moses we have the law he said if you're Abraham's children you do the works of Abraham what did Abraham do Abraham was an addicted giver Abraham Abraham tithed before the law tithing became a commandment in Moses's day but it was a faith thing to do before Moses. And so if you, get, if you allow the devil to get you to believe and you accept his beliefs concerning it's an old thing, all the preachers want is your money, then he'll keep, he has successfully robbed you of actually walking into God's prosperity plan for your life. I'm going to tell you, I can tell you testimony after testimony. When we had nothing, we tithed. Now we, we, we don't just tithe, we tithe and give above and beyond because that's the purpose of it. But we, we I remember once we had our bank account, we were, <laughs> I don't know if we were in the single digits or whatnot, but we were in bad shape and I had my wife and we, we were living in a basement somewhere and I remember we had no money to, to pay anything. We didn't have money for food, we didn't have, and I remember giving and I kid you not, a week later, someone calls me. He had been in one of our meetings once. He said, hey, uh, brother, I have something for you. Could you pass by my house to come and get it? I went by. He had drawn up a five. I've never seen that money. I've never seen that many 
zeros after a digit in my entire life to that moment. He had drawn up a $5,000 check and handed it to me. He said, I felt from the Lord to bless you with this just to get your mind on. And, and I'm going to tell you, in the flesh, my mind was on, you know, as much as I'm a faith preacher, I was, you know, trying to, con we were confessing faith. We were confessing that uh, God's got all our needs met, that he's not going to leave us hanging, that I've been young and now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his children begging for bread. I, I confess that, but my mind was focused on the finances. But I'm telling you, at the right time, God sent that man. He so they sold 5000 into me and my wife, and we were able to continue doing, I mean, we were drained. We had nothing left. And at the right time, God brought it in. I can tell you a story uh, of, of, of uh, when I was first saved. And I had not, a, <laughs> I had not, not money to my account. I had $11,000 debt with no way out. And I didn't tell anybody about it. And I remember uh, being in a service. And I, I told the Lord, Lord, this debt is weighing on me. Because debt's not a sin, but debt is a weight. And it entangles you and it gets you off focused and distracted. And your mind's always on it. And if anybody's in debt watching, you know what I'm talking about. And what ends up happening in that service is I, I remember I had nothing to give. I literally had no money. I had negative bank balance. So I took my iPhone. I sold it. And I sold it. And I said, God, this is my sacrificial seed. Within the month, I had someone come up to me. And I don't know how. Anyways, they somehow found out. They sold $10,000 and said, we heard you had debt. I'm, I want to take care of that debt. Nobody they sold $10,000 there. Then another person, um, within a month, with, I didn't go around voicing it. Hey, we have, I, if anybody knows me, you know, I've, I never, I never confess need. I'll never come on a broadcast and say, hey, we have, I've never done it. I'll never do it. It'll never happen. Uh, within the same month, someone else drew up a $10,000 check for me, and then another person, another $10,000 check. I had sold $300, and by the end of the month, I had $30,000. I paid off my debt. I was going to Bible college in January. This was December. I paid off um, the $18,000 bill that I had at the time, and then I had enough money left over to buy myself all my books, a laptop for me to write notes on, and, and you know, a guitar, because I like playing the guitar, and uh, I, I wanted to have a guitar. And I had, I, had, I had everything met by the end of the month. This is real. This is real. And any, any voice in your mind that would tell you to think, get you to think or try and deceive you into thinking that it's, it's all just a gimmick. It's, I don't know how else to explain it, but it's all throughout the Bible. That's not lie number one. Lie number two is the gifts of the Spirit are not for today. This is where things are going to get hot. The devil wants the church to believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not for today. That they're, uh, it sees with the last apostle that God's moved on to a new program. And the reason why he does this is because he knows that a church that doesn't operate in the gifts will have to rely upon the flesh. And if you rely upon the flesh, You'll have to, you know, the Bible says, cursed is man who trusts in his own flesh. You'll actually adopt a curse rather than a blessing. If you rely on the flesh, if you're relying on man, if you're relying on man-made programs to accomplishing God's assignment for your life, it's going to be like you're, you're trying to walk against a hurricane force wind coming your way. It's going to be tough and hard. 
You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Bible says concerning spiritual gifts, I would not have you ignorant. Isn't it funny that the thing God says don't be ignorant on, the church goes and gets the most ignorant on? When's the last time you've heard a preach a preacher preach on the gifts of the Holy Spirit? And how you operate in the gifts of the Spirit. And how to function in these gifts. It's not a popular message. And then you have the lie that the devil's perpetrated throughout the church. That the gifts of the Spirit not only uh, 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 no longer function. But it died with the last apostle. And that because the word of God is here. We don't need the gifts. And they use 1 Corinthians 13. That the gifts We're useful until that which is perfect has come, referring to the word of God. That's not what Paul was saying. Paul said that now we see through a glass dimly, but then we shall see clearly. And for the moment, let me read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, but for now we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. So the people that say that the gifts of the Spirit no longer function, they use that scripture to say that that which was imperfect is done away with. Because the Bible has come. The Bible, the canonization of the scriptures was the perfection that Paul was speaking of. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the second advent of Christ. The return of Jesus. When Christ comes back in his glory, we're not going to need the gifts of the Spirit. We're not going to need to prophesy. We're not going to need the gift of faith. We're going to see him as he is. We're going to have glorified bodies. We're going to put on Christ in, in, in his entire nature. The Bible says that we're not, we're not going to need healing there. We're not going to require, there's not going to be sickness in that state of being that we'll be on. We're going to take off this corruptible tent and we're going to put on incorruption. So we're not going to need to prophesy and encourage our brothers. We're already going to be encouraged because we're going to see Christ. So the devil uses this whole, the gifts of the Spirit on for today, to shut the church off from ever teaching on the gifts. Because think of it, if it's not pertinent for today, why would we talk about it? If it doesn't work today, then why? When in reality, not only does it work today, it's what is needed and required more than anything to work today. Paul said, my gospel is not in word, but in power. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit is the channel through which the power of God is ministered to the people. The devil doesn't care if your church has a 20-foot LED wall and flashing lights and nice smoke screens and and, and, and uh, you have a, a food program that feeds a thousand people a week. Those are all nice things. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying the devil doesn't bat an eye at that. He doesn't get him worried. He doesn't care if you have the best worship set ever. He doesn't care if you're involved in every humanitarian work there is. He doesn't care if you have a soup kitchen every single day of the week. He doesn't care if you hand out socks and bless the poor. All of that is great. The Red Cross does it though, and the devil doesn't bother them. He doesn't care about that as much as he trembles at a church that has secured God's power through fasting and prayer and is releasing it via the channels of the gifts of the spirit that are designed to set man free from all oppression of the devil that's when the devil trembles when the church starts to flow in the gifts of the holy spirit peter and john going to the hour of prayer silver and gold we don't have because money couldn't help them flashing lights wouldn't have helped that man that was lame and paralyzed 
He says, such as we do have, we give unto you. And he worked a miracle. The Bible says he, he lifted him up. That's the gift of the working of miracles that happened at that moment. And what was the byproduct of it? The crowds came rushing together and they were astonished. And Peter then had a platform to preach the gospel. And the Bible says another 2,000 people were added to the church that very day. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, you know how many churches they say? Well, we don't preach about the gifts here because they, you know, first of all, the last apostle when he died, when Paul died, that was it. And then also, secondly, you know, I've never seen a, a charismatic church or a gift, a, a church that operates in the gifts of the Spirit. I've never seen, uh, uh, I've never seen them. I've never seen anything but chaos. I've never seen anything but disorganization. I've never seen anything but confusion. And God's not an author of confusion, but of order. And when, the gift, when they call those so-called gifts of the Spirit are in operation, there's never any order. It's all confusion. That's how they, that's how they explain it away. That's how they, they pretty much uh, get around it. And then they'll go on YouTube and they'll put videos of a few knucklehead preachers that do abuse the gifts of the Spirit. They call something, they don't abuse the gifts of the Spirit, they just call something that they're doing the gifts of the Spirit, when in reality it's nothing near the gifts of the Spirit. It's all in the flesh. It's all carnal. You know, Paul actually, in writing to the Corinthian church, he's, he, if you start the book, he actually rebukes them because they're being so carnal. He says, you guys, I, I wanted to come with milk. I wanted to come with something that would edify and grow you, but you're carnal. He said, you're saved, but you're carnal. And then he doesn't start 1 Corinthians 12, which is the gifts of the Spirit passage, by saying, you know what, since you guys are carnal, it, it is no use for the gifts of the Spirit. Just stay clear from it. Don't even talk about it. No, he says, he puts it in order. He seeks to remove the carnality of it and get things straight. He seeks to correct them. You know, for all those people that say, I've never seen the gifts of the Spirit function properly. It's always been a mess, so I don't talk about it. There's nothing that can be done in a service wrongly, like someone, whatever, if it's a message in tongues or, or someone prophesying and they're not, doing, they're not doing it by the Spirit. There's nothing that a person can do in the flesh in a service that can't be corrected and modified. And if they won't be corrected, just throw them out. But I'd rather throw them out Hey, Pastor Oscar. By the way, Pastor Oscar Sosa's on my broadcast. You've seen him on our, on our uh, YouTube channel before. If you haven't already, go and subscribe to uh, the, Remnant, the Remnant YouTube channel. He's, he's uh, starting a YouTube channel. It's going to greatly bless you. It's going to be a great help to you. The Remnant Montreal YouTube channel. Oscar, put the description in, in the comment section. There's nothing that cannot be corrected, exhorted, and then if they don't receive the correction, first of all, if they don't receive the correction, you know they were never in the spirit in the first place because humility is a fruit of, of the regenerated spirit. So you just throw them out. But don't just throw the, don't just ignore a vital component of, 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 uh, of New Testament living just because there was a few erroneous things that happened once. You know, that's the whole strange fire conference that they used to do. They would put on the screen people that, that uh, really were, they were trying to mock them. You know, they had like this, this movement once in Toronto where they would put leashes on people and they would make them walk around like dogs and say, this is that charismatic, as if we're all like that. Just because there's a few bad eggs doesn't mean the whole dozen's bad. 
And they put that strange fire conference on and they put it on a big TV and they were laughing at it and mocking it and they would have conference speakers get up and talk about how it's all nonsense. That's exactly, because, understand this, because the devil can't do anything to stop God's power, he moves to expose the few bad seeds to get people to mock God's power and so turn away from it totally in its totality. But when the gifts of the Spirit are in actual operation, if you read 1 Corinthians 12, 7, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to everybody, for, is given to each one individually for the profit of all. So the gifts of the Spirit will actually bring profitability to the church. It'll actually bring increase to the church. It'll actually bring uh, growth to the church. There's a church in the States that the pastor, he literally used to uh, minister in the word of knowledge and the working of miracles on Sunday morning and they were televised all across North America. And he did it boldly. What did it lead to? He has the largest church in the United States right now. So it didn't, you know, it's like tongues. We don't speak in tongues on Sunday morning because we're not, you know, the Bible actually says that the gifts of the spirit when they're in operation properly, that the unbeliever will come in and he'll report that God is truly among you and he'll fall on his face and he'll repent. That's the purpose of the gifts. Why would God give something called a gift if it's only going to harm the church? The gifts of the Spirit are not, and this is why I'm tackling this hard, because the devil tells people the gifts aren't for today or the gifts harm the church because he wants to get the church to be powerless. And a powerless church has to resort to other methods and means that are futile and powerless in nature. And that's where there's stunt. There's a stunting of the growth. Philip was an evangelist, went down to Samaria, worked the working of miracles. Many that were taken with palsy were healed, and there was great joy in the city, and they had a, a, a citywide revival. Stephen, who was a deacon in the church, the Bible says, was full of faith and power and did many signs and wonders. What was the result? People came to Stephen. The gifts of the Spirit are like magnets to bring people to Christ. They were designed to exalt and edify Christ. Lie number three, the day of miracles are past. God doesn't do miracles anymore. God doesn't heal the sick anymore. For you to say that, you'll have to take God's I am to an I was and change his nature. Tell him that he's mutable, meaning he's changeable. The Bible says in Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord your God and I change not. God does not change. For you to say he doesn't do miracles anymore, you'd have to say that God has changed because God doesn't, God doesn't just do miracles. He is the God of miracles. What we call a miracle is just another day for God. It's just an action God takes. We see it as a miracle. We see it as a supernatural intervention. But for God, it's just natural for him. It's just who he is. And then I'll tell you another thing is miracles are a product of faith. So if you're going to say God doesn't do miracles anymore, a miracle, the day of miracles are gone... This is what the devil wants you to believe because if he can get you to believe miracles don't happen anymore, then he will, he's guaranteed that you'll never have your own. You'll, you'll never enjoy your own miracle. You'll never get healed. You'll never have that breakthrough because what you believe, you're empowered to become. And what you believe will determine the outcome of your situation. Jesus said, if you have faith, you can say to a mountain, which represents an impossible obstacle or uh, uh, um, a difficult challenge that you're facing. You can say to your mountain, be uprooted. 
Be tossed from here to there, and it will happen, and nothing will be impossible for you. The Bible says with God, nothing is impossible. The Bible says he made the heavens and the earth by his great power and outstretched arm, and nothing is too difficult for him. So the devil wants to get you to believe that miracles don't happen anymore so that you never ask God for anything, and you just settle where you're at, and you just tolerate the onslaught of hell, and you just learn to be content. God does not... God, when the Bible says learn to be content, he means with such as you have in your silver, gold, in your raiment, don't be greedy for gain. Yes, seek to increase for the purpose of the expansion of the kingdom, but be content with what you have. Don't complain about what you have. Be happy for what God's brought to you. But being content, the biblical way, isn't being content with what the devil's doing in your life. It's not being content with the devil slapping your face left, right, and center. It's not being content with the sickness the devil slapped on you. It's being content with what you have in life, house, stuff, you know, whatever. Don't be greedy for gain. Don't be covetousness. Uh, don't be covetous. But he certainly didn't mean be content with the devil's attack on your life. In that, in that, pers- in that way, you're to be violent. So miracles are a product of faith. If you're to say miracles don't happen anymore, you have to say faith doesn't exist anymore. And if faith doesn't exist anymore, then we're in worse shape than we ever thought because it's by faith, by grace through faith that we're saved. So we can't even be saved without faith. And if we're not saved with, with, because faith doesn't work anymore, then we're still in our sins and we're on our way to hell. And you know, the devil couples the whole lie of miracles don't happen anymore with You know, the reason why God did miracles in Bible days was because he needed to show his glory. He needed to establish the gospel. He needed to establish the church. Now that the church is established, he doesn't need to do miracles anymore. He doesn't have to show his glory anymore. Are you brain dead? First of all, miracles have four. There's four reasons God does a miracles. Number one is, yes, to show forth God's glory. God desires to show forth his glory. This beginning of signs and wonders did Jesus at Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory to his disciples. So the miracle ministry of Jesus is first and foremost, yes, it is to bring glory to God. It is to exalt his name. It's to show man that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Paul said, I didn't come in word only, but in the demonstration of the spirit and power of God so that your faith can be in God and not in words. The kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. 1 Corinthians 4.20. The second motivation that God has in doing miracles is because of compassion and love. The Bible says he was moved with compassion and he healed their sick. The leper came to Jesus and Jesus was moved with compassion and he touched him and he said, Be thou made clean. And he was healed in that very moment. The Bible says he saw a widow of Nain weeping and he went and touched the casket of her son that was dead. And he sprang back to life. He did it because of compassion. God's not heartless. God's not some dull sense, uh, insensitive being that is that has no, he can't be moved with the feelings that we have. That he, he's just some disconnected being that visits us every so often just to see how we're doing and that's it. He moves on to the next. God loves people. God is moved with compassion. 
God doesn't feel bad for you. God is moved. If all God did was feel bad for you, then that wouldn't do anything because you can feel bad for people and not do anything to help them. God didn't just feel bad for mankind. God was moved with compassion for mankind. That's why he sent Jesus. That's why Jesus did miracles. That's why Jesus wept over Jerusalem. What did he say? I've sought to gather you. I've sought to help you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing to come. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He was pleading for Jerusalem. Just believe in me and your sorrows would end. Jesus's miracle ministry was a direct result of an overflow of love and compassion for humanity. The Bible says God is love. Everything he does is compelled by love. He stood, he stayed on that cross because of love. He died for love's sake. He rose again for love's sake. And that love hasn't changed. For you to say that Jesus no longer performs miracles today as he did in Bible's days, Knowing that Jesus did miracles in Bible days because of his love for people, you'd have to also conclude that Jesus' love has somewhat diminished for the people of, of God on the earth today. That he loved people in Bible days more than he loves people today. Because he was moved with compassion and healed their sick, but he's no longer moved with as much compassion today to heal their sick. It's heresy. To say that we should expect less miracles now in this new covenant then God did in the old covenant through Elijah and Elisha and Abraham and all the other uh, men of God, David. Then we, all, we are to conclude that there were more benefits and more rights under the first covenant than there was on the second covenant. That doesn't make sense because Hebrews 8, 6 says we are under a better covenant established upon better promises. Well, if Jesus came and established a better covenant, well, what's better mean? It has to at least include what was and more for it to be better. I just bought this uh, cologne. I have a very expensive cologne that I use, but I don't want to use it as much. So I bought this alternative fragrance that's apparently just as good. And so I just got it today. And so I had my wife, without me looking, I had her spray this hand uh, and this hand. And then I smelt both wrists and I tried to determine uh, which one was which. And they're extremely similar. But there was one that just stood out. And it was the more expensive cologne because they use better ingredients. It's oil-based or whatever. So I, I smelt it and I said, this is that. This is the, the expensive one and this is the alternative. She's like, how'd you know? I said, because this one has very good smell, but this one has everything this has. And then there's, some, there's certain notes of smell that this one just can't, can't get to. And that's exactly a great analogy for the old and new covenant. The old covenant had healing in, I mean, Jehovah Rapha. God said, I'm the Lord, your healer under the old covenant. He said, I am the Lord, your provider. I am the Lord, your shepherd. I am. Well, if under the old covenant, God was all those things, and under the new covenant, he ceased to be all those things, then we should go back to the old covenant because it was clearly better. But no, in this new covenant, he's not only all those things for our temporal help, but we now have the eternal assurance of salvation and we've been sealed with the Holy Ghost of promise. Hallelujah. We not only have everything under the old covenant included in this new one, but we have eternal life also. And that's why he, Hebrews 8.6, uh, whoever wrote Hebrews, he doesn't say... We have, uh, 
You know, we forfeited a lot of things under the old covenant, but at least we have eternal life. No, we have it all, but we have even better now. Hallelujah. The Bible says, three, the reason God does miracles is to prove his unchangeableness, his immutability. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He never changes. He's the same always. Malachi 3, 6, I'm the Lord your God, I change not. To say that God no longer works miracles, and the, you know they say the day of miracles is gone. Brother, what, there was never a day of miracles. There's only a God of miracles, and he's never changed, and he'll never change. The Bible says, you, O Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you shall remain. They will grow old, and they're prone to fluctuation. But you, like a cloak, will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and you're ye. Years have no end. Hebrews chapter 9, the Bible says, God showed the immutability of his counsel. Immutability is a fancy theological term for unchangeableness. It's impossible for God to change. And he showed it when he confirmed his word by an oath. And he swore by his own name that I would be to you, Jehovah Rapha. I would be to you, Jehovah Jireh. I would be to you, the Lord, your helper, your stronghold, your refuge, a, a very present help in times of trouble. I'll be to you, your salvation. I'll be to you, your provision. I'll never change my way of dealing with you. I'll help you. I'll sustain you. I'll lift you up when you're down. Hallelujah. His love hasn't changed. His eagerness to help man hasn't changed. And his power to do so has not changed. Number three reason God does miracles. Number four is to fulfill his mission. To destroy the work of the devil. The Bible says that Jesus Christ went about doing good. Healing all that were oppressed of the devil. For God was with him. The motivation for doing miracles. Jesus said was to destroy the works of the devil. To heal all oppressed of the devil. To undo what the devil did. And then to establish and implement God's will in their life. Number, number four lie the devil pitches to our generation. Is your prodigals and your family members and people you're praying for will never be saved. The devil uses this lie to bring hopelessness into a situation and into a home. To get people hopeless. Oh, they're too far gone. Because if there's no hope, then you can have no help. Because hope, remember faith is the substance of things hoped for. Hope is good. Hope shows you what you want. Faith brings it to reality. Faith is what substantializes it. It brings substance. Faith is what causes you to see the things you hope for. So if, all you, if you have no hope, then faith, it's like, for example, conception. You have the man's seed that goes and targets the woman's ovary, her egg. The egg in her ovary. And you can't have an egg only. Or you can't have a seed only. It requires the seed and the egg for there to be conception and life to be generated. In the same vein, you can't just have hope, which is the, the egg that the seed of faith has to fertilize. So if there's no egg, faith can't fertilize anything. There's nothing to grow. So hope is necessary. So the devil tries to make you hopeless. And in making you hopeless, there's, no, there's nothing faith can do about your situation at that moment. Faith 
fertilizes the egg of hope to bring about a miracle of salvation in your family. Satan's mission is to keep people out of heaven. His main objective is not to make people sick or all those things is what he does. But his objective is to make sure you don't make heaven. To reduce the citizenship of heaven. And the way he does this is by getting mothers and fathers and other people who have wayward relatives and family members and children to give up praying for their prodigal. I'm here to, I feel this strong in my spirit. There's some of you right now, you have children, they're wayward, they're not serving the Lord. And you've, you've actually said, recently, I'm, not, I'm stopping. I, there's no point in praying for them anymore. Well, I'm here to remind you that there, as long as there's hope, the Bible says, then there, there's help. I'm here to remind you that you should never give up praying for your children. I'm here to remind you that as long as there's breath in your lungs, there's a God that hears the prayers of the saints that is on standby, ready, ready to fulfill his word. Remember the Bible says, as for you and your household, you will be saved. It's a promise. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. My father and mother prayed for me. I, didn't, I grew up in church, but I left young. And I didn't come back till I was 20. And I didn't come back because I thought it was a good idea. My, my, the, I remember seeing my father fast and pray as I was grabbing a bottle of Jack Daniels from my own, my own basement you know, cellar or whatever. And I would just be leaving the house and I'd watch him praying and fasting and, and believing God as I was going out to party. And I, I, you know, I don't remember what I thought at the moment, but I, I just said, you know, sucks, the guy can't eat. And I didn't realize that he was doing it for me. And then it was when I was 20 years old. So I left when I was like 12, 13. It was eight years later that the very prayers of my parents, like a hook in a fish's mouth, brought me right back in. And not only did God fulfill uh, or answer his prayer to get me saved, he went even above and beyond all that you can ask, think, or imagine. It made me a preacher. And now my life's mission and mandate is to bring other prodigals home. They never ceased praying for me. And I was a mess, hooked on drugs, hooked on alcohol, partying all the time, doing everything the world tells you to do. So if there was anyone that was too far gone, it was me. OCD, anxiety, messed up. But I had praying parents. There's a story of uh, Kenneth Hagen's brother, Dub Hagen, who was like the black, black sheep of the family. Everyone else was saved. He was the only one else that was out partying and whatnot. And for years, Brother Hagen prayed for his brother Dub, and nothing happened. Kept on getting worse. Then finally, the Lord showed him in Ephesians that we were seated in heavenly places far above uh, the devil and his principalities. And then he saw in 2 Corinthians 4 that it's the blinders of the devil that keep people unbelieving, that keep people... Uh, away from God so that they don't see the, the light of the gospel. So the Lord spoke to me and said, I've given you authority. And because he's in your immediate family, because you have a special authority over your immediate family, because he's in your family, you have authority to command the blinders that the enemies put on his eyes to shatter and be, be, uh, be removed from his life. So he said, command them, stop praying to me and start commanding the dark force that's over his life that's keeping him from believing to leave his life. So he did that. He said, in the name of Jesus, I command those blinding forces of the devil to shatter over his life and for him to see the gospel. He shall be saved in Jesus' name. A couple of hours later, he was getting water from his water cooler and the devil put a thought in his mind saying, you really think just because you said a few words that I'm going to leave your brother? Ah, no way. 
I'm here to stay. You really think that? Kenneth Hagin said, I started bubble, uh, I started bubbling up from within and like belly laughing. And I said, no, devil, I don't think. I know. And the very fact you came to taunt me again and intimidate me to back down shows that it's working. And he just belly laughed. And anytime he thought about his brother Dub from that moment on, where he just said, I thank you that the blinders of the enemy are broken and that he shall come to salvation. Well, you know what? Two weeks later, years of praying, nothing worked. Two weeks later, he walked into the church that he was preaching at, at the end of the service, gave his life to Christ, and he served the Lord. Uh, he served the Lord until he went home to be with Jesus. Hallelujah. You have authority. Your children aren't serving the Lord. You have, a, you have a special level of authority over them. You're the priest of your home. You take authority over any force working against the salvation of my loved ones. They will not, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. They're not going to miss heaven. Some of you say, well, we didn't grow up in church. You know, they, they didn't grow up with a Christian family. I just got saved recently. Doesn't matter. God can turn the entire, you can be the first domino to fall and the rest of your family gets saved after you. Even parents, Andrea, even parents. And I finish with this. Number five lie that the devil tries to pitch to this generation is prayer doesn't change anything. Praying is useless. No point asking God for that. John Wesley used to say, it seems to me that God will do nothing on the earth unless someone prays. And so the devil, because, you know, prayer is, James, James 4.3 says, you have not because you ask not. So God, God will not. Uh, here's how the saying goes. Without God, man cannot accomplish anything. And without man's prayers, God will not accomplish anything. Not that he cannot, he just will not. God invites you to pray because he has designed prayer to be the function by which he, he, he implements his desires on the earth, his will on the earth. Jesus said, pray this way that my will be done on earth, which shows that God's will will not be done on the earth unless we pray his will into the earth. So because the devil doesn't want your situation to change in a favorable way, in the positive way, he seeks to keep you from the prayer closet because that's where the change happens. Jesus said, when you pray, go into the secret place and your prayers that are done in secret, God will himself reward you openly. You can't have the open reward without the private devotion to prayer. Everybody loves to look at Elijah. You know, he prayed a 15-second prayer and it's like, Fire came from heaven. Elijah could pray a 15-second prayer and have wonderful results because he was devoted to God in prayer regularly. When you pray, not if you pray. You build up. You, you build up your prayer life. And the more it's built up, the easier answers come. That's why you have people that's like, why is it everything, every time they pray, something happens. Eh, you know, here I am, nothing They've learned, they've learned to, uh, to pray. You know, you can be taught to pray. It's not just, you know, just, just, just spoil, spill out your heart to God. That's what prayer is. No, heart, prayer is not spilling your heart out to God. It's not just, you know, vent, prayer is not a venting session. Jesus, the disciples came to him and said, teach us to pray, which shows you prayer can be taught. You can learn to pray. 
And in learning to pray, you get better at it. And I know there's people that's like, oh, you can't be better at prayer than others. I'm not saying you become more eloquent. Oh, I used to pray in NLT. Now I pray in the King James Version. It's just you've understood. You know, the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, he will help you to communicate with God. He'll help you to talk to God. The Holy Spirit will help you speak to God. So when you're praying, you're actually engaged in the school of the Spirit where he teaches you to pray and he teaches you to communicate with God. And he teaches you, you know, the Bible says in Romans 8, he, he, he helps us in our prayer weaknesses. When we don't know how to pray or what to pray for, he prays through us with groanings that cannot be uttered. The Holy Spirit will teach you to pray and communicate effectively with God so that prayer is not some futile, religious, frustrating exercise that you engage in just to do some spiritual duty to God. But it is a wonderful delight thing whereby we receive James 5 says wonderful results the prayers of the righteous are uh, the fervent prayers of the righteous bring forth and accomplish many wonderful results so the devil tries to get the church to believe that prayer doesn't work anymore or prayer doesn't change anything because a prayerless church is a powerless church a church that does not pray a church that doesn't pray guarantees that Satan marches on unhindered. But when the church begins to pray on the flip side, it acts as a restraining force against the plans of the devil. It incapacitates the enemy and his army so that they're rendered useless. You know, the Bible says you are the restrainer for the Antichrist and the globalist system that they're trying to implement on the earth. Do you know that the, the Bible says that you, 2 Thessalonians 2, you are the restrainer? The Holy Spirit in you is restraining the Antichrist from doing what he wants to do. Why hasn't he brought the world into a great tribulation? Because he, he can't yet. You are the restrainer. You're holding back the forces of darkness. You are the light of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. Salt preserves from decadence. Salt preserves from rotting. Salt is a preservative that keeps things fresh. The moment the church is taken away in the rapture, Within seven years, the whole, the, you won't even recognize the earth. It'll be a mess because the salt's been re removed. And so the earth will rot in less than seven years. You won't even recognize it. So if the Spirit of God in you is a resisting force with the Antichrist and his globalist plans, when you pray, that same restraint is, being, is handcuffing any agent of the devil that's been assigned to destroy your life, to make your life a living hell, to any blueprint that Satan has designed to make life hard, to make life sorrowful. When you pray, you're restraining the implementation of those plans. You're literally spoiling the satanic plans of the devil. You're acting as a restraint. That's why we pray for our nation, because we're restraining the powers of darkness from, why do you think you go to the Bible Belt of the United States? It's a hard time finding a, a street that doesn't have a church on. And there's good churches. Why is it that you have, you know, Texas and, 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 and Florida and other places where it's like so saturated with good Bible churches, but then you go a little up north and stuff, they, they call Canada. Every time they talk about Canada, how I many you know Canada's cold? spiritually, you know, not just physically, cold spiritually. I mean, nobody in the God, which is, by the way, not true. But why is it that when I preach, I'll, I'll tell you, when I preach, 
in like the southern United States, there's just this 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 easiness in preaching the gospel. Even in Pennsylvania, there's like this this easiness. There's little resistance when I preach there. But then when we do a crusade in Montreal or whatever, you can feel there is a resistance. It doesn't matter. We, we preach past the resistance. And then once people, the anointing settles in, people are like magnets. They, they want to get saved. They've never heard the gospel preached that way. But why is it? Because all throughout the 1900s, there were great preachers. Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, R.W. Shambach, A.A. Allen, Oral Roberts. You had wonderful, great men of God that traveled throughout the United States. And they laid that foundation. They laid the groundwork. That's why the United States is different. Why is it? I'm from Canada. I know the United States is different even from Canada. They always say Canada is just little brother. No, it's different. Why do you think that? I mean, look what's happened with Roe v. Wade. They're going to overturn it. There is a, a, a spiritual, a rich spiritual heritage. And that came because of men of God that prayed and preached. So when we pray for our nation, we're seeking to do the same thing. To restrain the works of darkness. To expose the works of darkness. And then, you know, Jesus said, you know, when people, people always say, Lord, we just pray that sinners would get saved. God doesn't answer that prayer. You know what prayer God answers? Lord, we pray that you would send out more harvesters into your fields. More laborers into your harvest fields. The harvest is ripe. The laborers are few. So what do we do? We pray not only that the works of darkness would be stayed, but then we believe that God is going to dispatch laborers into the harvest fields to bring the gospel to the hearts of men. So that's on a national level. The devil wants to get you to believe that prayer doesn't change things, you know, no matter how much you pray, this nation's going to hell. But on an on, on a individual level, Prayer changes things. Prayer can change things for you. Prayer can change things for your finances. Prayer can change things for your, your health. Prayer can change things for your family. Prayer can change things for your career. Prayer can change things for, for anything that pertains to you in life. Isaiah tells Hezekiah, you're going to die in this sickness. Hezekiah turns to the wall and says, God, remember me. Remember your covenant. And he prayed. Isaiah was spun on his ankles, went back into the to the chambers of the king and said, Hezekiah, God has heard your prayer. Prayer is not manipulating God to do your own bidding. Prayer is a system God has implemented whereby we can take his word to him and like a lawyer that goes to court, you plead your case from his word and then God judges and rules in your favor. It's not manipulating God's hand to do your bidding. Prayer is a God-instituted program whereby we have a point of release for our faith now. Because it's not enough just to have, I have all the faith in my heart. Have you prayed for it? I, I have all the faith in the world in my heart. That's not enough. You have to release that faith through your prayers. Daniel prayed and the lion's mouths were shut. Nehemiah prayed and the temple walls were rebuilt. Nehemiah 1 is one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. Nehemiah 9 too. God would never have invited you to pray unless he had a desire, an eager burning desire to answer your prayers. Well, we don't know if God wants to answer our prayers. We just leave it in his hands. Why would he say pray? He said, ask and you shall receive. Knock 
The door will be open. Seek, you will find. Not ask and, you know, God will evaluate whether it's right or not. Ask if it be according to his word. You can find it in this book. You have every right to ask God for it. And God, the Bible says, honor his word above his own name. You have a right to ask and God has an obligation to perform. And I don't mean that disrespectfully because I know a lot of people say, he said God has an obligation. God's not obligated to do anything. Just religious thinking. Religion dulls the minds of men. It makes people stupid. I always said it. Sin makes stupid. Sin makes ugly. Sin makes futile. It dulls the, man, the, the minds of men. Oh, he's saying God's obligated to perform. He has bound himself to his own word. You think he's mad that... Oh, crud. I can't believe that they actually discovered my healing promises. Now I actually have to heal them. And I, I don't want to do that. Angels, play some music. I, I need to think. That's not what he, he's... It's as if he's like... like He's written all these things just to show you how, how, what he can do, but he ain't going to do it for you. No. If he put it down here, and then he said, ask. Call unto me. Call unto me. And he said, I will answer you. And I'll confuse you. I'll answer you and show you great and mighty things which you know not of. I feel to pray right here. There's many of you that you've been deceived by religion. Into, I don't know if I can ask God for that. I know it's in his word, but, you know, if it be his will. You don't pray if it be his will if he already said it's my will. You take his will to the bank and you cash it. And you say, thank you, Father, that you said. Thank you, Father, that you said. That I'll, I'll be the head always and never the tail. I thank you, Father, that you said that you'll take sickness out of our midst, that by his stripes we're healed. Father, I thank you that you said that, uh, uh, that if, we'll, if we'll diligently hearken unto your voice, that all these blessings will come upon me. I'm not seeing this area of my life blessed. I'm asking you now. You know, you can take it, you can like a good lawyer, approach him with his word. And your prayer will change things. How many of you know prayer doesn't change things? It just changes you. It actually does both. It changes you because Jesus, the Bible says, as he prayed, was transfigured before them. And his clothes became glistening white. So prayer changes you, but prayer changes things. Acts chapter 12. Uh, James, the less, gets beheaded. The Bible says Herod stretched out his hand against the church. He beheaded James. And then he took Peter and put him in prison with the same purpose. He was going to kill him and cut his head off. And the scripture says the church began to pray. And though James, there's no record of the church praying for James. He died. But then when they prayed for Peter, they probably thought, you know, we didn't pray for James and look what happened. We just left it in God's hands and it didn't turn out so well. So maybe we should pray about this one. And they prayed and the Bible says that... Peter was delivered. An angel was sent, struck him on his side, got him up and delivered him out of the, 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 the soldiers that were guarding his prison cell. And then what was the first thing Peter did? He went to the house of Mary and he knew there was a prayer meeting going on. Why didn't he check everywhere else? He went right to Mary. He said, I know at this time we have prayer meetings on Wednesday nights, 7 through 9. I know they're praying. He went and what were they doing? They were praying. Hallelujah. Prayer changes things. Many a times throughout scripture, the people of Israel, they cried out, Lord, hear us now. See that your adversary have come to throw us out of the land that you've given us. 
But you, you said that if we'll stand in this holy place and call on your name, that you would deliver us in times of famine, deliver us in times of trouble, deliver us in times of pestilence. And Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And God heard them. And the Bible says they had victory without fighting. Oh, hallelujah. You can have victory without fighting. Victory without fighting. Victory without trying. The Bible says stand still and see. So there's a position to take to see the salvation of God. That position is the position of prayer. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Your battle's not against a human. It's against principalities and powers. And the weapon of warfare to use is the weapon of prayer when you engage God with the name of Jesus. Jesus even said, until now you've asked me nothing. Ask! And we'll evaluate in heaven. We'll have a board meeting. Ask and you shall receive so that your joy may be made full. If there's anything in your life that's causing you to have a depletion of joy, God wants to fill your joy tank today by answering your prayer. I feel the prayer right now. The very first prayer God has to answer before you ask him anything else is, 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 Lord, save me. If you've never given your life to Jesus, if you maybe have but you've gone astray, you're not living for the Lord quite like you know you should, and you know in your hearts that you're not prepared to meet God, that if Jesus were to come back right now, you're not sure that you'd make heaven your home. You're not sure if heaven would be your eternal destination. You need to make right right now. If there was ever a time, if there was ever a time to have this security in yourself, of salvation it's now the hour is late the days are few Jesus is coming back turn to Christ today pray this prayer with me if you've never done it or if you have but you're not living for the Lord you need to repent turn back to God be rededicate your life to Jesus today say this with me say father in Jesus name I believe you raised Jesus from the dead and I confess Jesus is my Lord Forgive me of my sin. Where I was weak, make me strong. I turn to you today. I'm never turning back. From today, I'm walking with Jesus. And your spirit will empower me to the end. In Jesus' name. I am saved. Not by works of righteousness. But by grace and through faith, I receive your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me, I want you to go to my website, salvationnow.ca. The first link that pops up is I just got saved. Click it, fill it out, uh, put your information there. I have a gift I want to send you free of charge. Uh, we just want to send you some uh, resources that are going to help you help you walk out and work out your salvation and make sure that this isn't just some, you know, blimp on the map, but that what God does today, He brings it to completion. So go on my website and do that. Stay connected with us by visiting us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching at TJ Malkanji or visit us online, www.salvationnow.ca. God bless you and until next time.